Hello and welcome to the London Insurance Lawyer Podcast. Today I'm with Sam Ridgewell, founder of Empower Development, TikTok and LinkedIn superstar. We talk insurance careers, content creation and the power of social media. Let's get into it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm here with Sam Ridgewell. Hi, Sam. Hey, Phil. Good to see you. Sam is well known to most people, I would say now, um, in the insurance industry for uh, many, many different facets of of what she does. Um, And I won't preempt all of those in case some of you who are listening don't know what they are. Um, What I'd like to do to start with, Sam, is just to explain who you are and how you became part of the insurance industry. So I'm Sam Ridgewell, uh, Managing Director of Empower Development, so trainer in insurance. We do a lot of training courses. Also, TikToker is one of the things I, I'm getting known for in a very specific postcode of the of the country. Um, and how I got into insurance was, uh, I wouldn't even describe it as, as an accident. I genuinely thought I was going for an interview with something to do with the bank. Um, so I went to an interview at at Liberty and someone told me they said it's part of Lloyd's but it's not Lloyd's so in my head I'm like okay it's not Lloyd's but it's part somehow it's connected that sounds fun and um, it took me about two months into my job to realize it had nothing to do with the bank so um it was really a temporary job that I took in HR and I just knew I wanted to be back in financial services even though I didn't understand what parts of financial services I was in uh, and it gave me the opportunity to uh, really being a HR team, which I was looking for at that time, I'd been working on my own in a standalone HR role. So um, a temporary job that uh, progressed on to uh, nearly 10 years. So it's a HR administrator role. Uh, and HR admin really is a lot of forms and a lot of processing. So things like uh, tracking people's annual leave, sickness, um, writing letters at the end of people's probations, doing referencing checks, writing contracts, booking people on their CII exams. That was actually my kind of first taste into insurance training. Uh, So any of those kind of forms that you end up doing with HR, there's usually a HR administrator uh, who's kind of compiling all of those together and making sure you have a good system and a lot of filing. In those days, it was paper files. uh, So a lot of paper filing as well. Yeah. So um, it was probably a bit of a backstep that role, actually. So I did a degree in HR. I did a placement year as a HR administrator, so same role as that really, um, in a bank, Rathbones, um, on Bond Street. That was very cool, but I, I was earning the money of a placement year student and working on Bond Street, so it came with challenges. Um, <laughs> and then I, in my final year, realised that I, where I hadn't been spending that much time going to university uh, and the hours weren't as time-consuming after doing a full-time job, I thought I had a bit more room to maybe do something else. So I did a 20 hours a week HR admin job alongside my third year of uni, um, which was in a hotel. So I did HR in a hotel uh, at Gatwick Airport. Uh, So I'd go to Gatwick Airport, do my job, and then get my train up to uni and do a lecture and then come back. Uh, And then after I graduated, um, it's fair to say I, I didn't really have guidance around what to do after uni. Um, I'm not really sure, you know, why I went to uni. I think there was 
couple of comments my dad had kind of made about how it helps people when they go to uni growing up. And I just thought, oh, okay, I should probably do that. But he didn't. My mum didn't. Uh, no one really did A-levels, let alone degrees in my house. So I was the first one sort of into uni. And then coming out of it, I didn't really know what you were meant to do. So grad, grad schemes weren't on my radar. Um, thinking about what job I wanted after. I just knew I wanted to work in HR, but I didn't really have a plan for that. So I sort of finished uni and kind of looked around and all these people had jobs lined up. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know we were meant to be applying for jobs. I've been working, um, hadn't really thought about this. So applied for um, just any immediate start HR jobs. Again, it was a temporary one I ended up doing, temporary job in a HR um, role in a private hospital, uh, which was local to me. And really, really local to me, very much in my comfort zone. It was a very different career path that I'd put myself on to where I've ended up. So I went into this job temporarily, um, went permanent. So I ended up being there maybe 18 months. And it was a standalone role. What that means in HR is you're the only one. And what that actually means is it's an incredibly lonely job because pretty much everything in HR is confidential. So you can't talk to anyone about anything you're doing in your job um, and you're on your own. And anyone that knows me can probably see that that is not a great personality fit for me. Uh, but I was just in my comfort zone. I was just in this job, like down the end of my road that was all very convenient uh, and kind of didn't really know what was else was out there because I didn't really have people around me saying, you know, you should do more. You could do this. I kind of thought I was already like that. That was cool. That was already my kind of life aspirations. I had a HR job. I was I was kind of, you know, done. Um, and then this HR manager came in to do a particular transition um, piece of work that was quite tricky. We were uh, asking people to work weekends, which didn't, wasn't very popular. It wasn't a great HR job to do. So, so she came in to help with that. And she really changed my life. Uh, she just said to me, what are you doing here? Get back up to London. I'm going to cover for you. Go do some job interviews. You shouldn't be here. Um, and I did. So I, I took two days off uh, and I just went and applied for a whole bunch of jobs. I had seven interviews over those two days. I got offered two of them. One of them was a permanent job. Um, and one of them was this temporary job at Liberty. Um, and to be really um, honest about it, and in the whole idea of pay transparency, it was paying quite a bit more <laughs> than the other job. So I thought, okay, even though it's temporary, it's quite a bit more money. And I've got a train ticket to pay for now if I'm traveling up to London. Um, so I'll go for that one. Um, uh, and that was it. Then all of a sudden, I kind of uh, was was aware of maybe more opportunities. Um, and I certainly, if she wasn't there, I don't know how long I would have kind of stayed doing that job, but I think I would have been very complacent doing it for, for a while. So companies usually split them with titles. Uh, so we have a graduate scheme, which would be uh, going to uni and an apprenticeship scheme for those that didn't. And then you'd have entry roles. Um, and sometimes those are open to either or. So there's no expectation that you have to anymore. Um, graduates do come in on a higher starting salary, uh, but then you can, uh, as an apprentice, kind of chase that salary. So by the time you would have spent three or four years at uni, you could hit that mark anyway. So um, there's it's kind of really either option now for people. What I generally suggest people do when they don't know is apply for uni and apply for uh, apprenticeships. And if you get offered a job that you would be quite excited about, after you've spent fifty thousand pounds on a degree, start that job. 
And if you don't, go to uni. Like You don't need to decide before you apply. I think there's a lot of pressure on people quite early on in sixth form to be like, are you going to go to uni or not? And like, well, Maybe see what see what your options are um, before, before looking for that. So started off as HR. Um, I was booking people on their CII exams and to be honest, made a few mistakes. Like I didn't understand the difference between a IF and an LM and at the time continuous assessment for anyone that's old enough to remember those. Um, and I found it really hard like booking people when I couldn't really understand what they were asking me for. So I thought I'll do a couple so then I can understand that process and and also understand like the, the stress that's coming with it when people are coming around panicking about a book or whatever. So I did a couple and then learned like what I was doing, what kind of, what company I was working for. And I was like, this is really cool. And then I thought, well, if I've learned that much and there's all these other exams left, there must be so much more to learn. So I carried on doing those. At the time I had a really long commute. I commuted from a town called Seaford, uh, which was, it was about two hours door to door. So I had time to, to study if I wanted to. So I did my CII and then started training people to do theirs sort of casually, um, like just kind of, informal groups at lunchtime that type of thing and then over time realized I was more interested in the training side than the rest of HR Uh, and that was a really hard thing for me to accept because the other people that worked in HR did not think training was interesting at all so when it was first presented to me it was one of these conversations that people get in their career of like okay you've got a new part of your job and it's not going to be the most exciting bit, but, you know, it'd be a great opportunity to learn sort of set up. So in my head, I was like, right, this isn't the dull bit that I've just got to be good at. And I kind of parked it in my head as not exciting because it had been projected on me in that way from others. Um, and it took me quite a while to kind of become conscious to the fact that I quite actually enjoyed it because <laughs> I just assumed it was meant to be dull. And then I was like, this, this, what are you talking about? This is like the more interesting bit. Um and Liberty merged. It went through um, quite a large merger uh, with a sort of sister party of, of Liberty. And there then was an opportunity to go from kind of doing a bit of um, uh, training to a lot of training. And by this point, I'd kind of progressed up the HR ladder, which is quite a kind of proverbial ladder, but like underwriting, you go HR administrator, advisors and so on. Um, so I kind of moved across to uh, learning and development advisor and then. Um, was able to build out a team um, and then a learning development manager role um, uh, and then really was kind of we were doing courses in-house I had so much freedom there they were so entrepreneurial at the time because it was growing so quickly uh, and everyone was just like yeah have a go um, so I I kind of got to feel like I was almost running a little business within the organization with my own budget and my own ideas and my own strategy and just complete freedom to like run with things um and have back in and buy in for stuff so uh it was a brilliant role I got I got to do so much uh and a lot of travel as well which was brilliant so I got to travel around to uh Dubai quite regularly um Brazil around Europe doing training courses uh so kind of get a really good idea of the, the culture of the organization from a global perspective um and then just kind of hit a point where I was like I feel like I could do this for me I feel like that might be the next thing because I really struggled. I, I got to a, a level where um, I, I didn't know what was next anymore. And I struggled with that because I was quite young to think, I don't know what my next job is. So I kind of really had to look around to to not feel like I'm putting all this energy and running 100 miles an hour without knowing what my like next destination is. 
Um, and then that, that just looked like the only thing I could think that I'd want to do next was to work for myself. So I kind of had that as um, as really my next ambition uh, and told my manager, actually, incredibly early. And I, I, I tell people this in, in training. If you tell people what you want to do next, as long as you're not telling them, like, you know, that you want to do their job and you want that job in two months time, you know, they're, they're generally quite supportive. So I sort of said to her, you know, my next job I want to work for myself Um I think it's probably about a year and a half from now, away from now, maybe. And um, like these experiences I want to gain while I'm here doing that. Just was really transparent about it. Um, and that was really quite helpful because it meant I could sort of carve out more learning opportunities for myself over that time. Thought I got so. pregnant. <laughs> I got pregnant and it was a surprise. Uh, it was a welcome surprise. <laughs> um, so 18 months got pulled forward. Because uh, I thought, well, hold on, I'm having to at least temporarily leave this job I love. And I knew that was going to be the hardest thing, actually. I think the hardest thing for me was walking away from something I really love. Um, so uh, I was like, this has got to be the time. Um, uh, I think that was probably uh, maybe a year, ended up being about like a, a year after that I probably was kind of knowing I was going to leave by that point. Because, uh, yeah, it was all a bit of a bit a bit speeded up really but that made it a real advantage actually for me in terms of setting up a business um there were two things there that I could um sort of transparently uh negotiate my exit in a different way actually um and again this is another thing like be transparent with with people and there's often a win-win solution there there was really an opportunity for me to rather than go on maternity leave and and not come back I could resign and let the organization replace me permanently but make sure I wasn't going to walk away from my maternity benefits so that was a real kind of um cash flow opportunity for me in a way um but also it meant that it takes a while to set up a business you know it takes a while to build momentum um clients to work out what you're doing and I think a lot of people um can panic during that time it's very natural to feel like it's not happening fast enough uh, and you need to be patient with it and let it kind of, you know, the long-term benefits of some of the early things you do, they take a while to pay off. So um, having a baby uh, really kind of took that pressure off me because, you know, if I wasn't busy, that was okay. Like I'm a new mum, I should be spending some time at home. Um, and if I was busy, then I was like, well, this is great, going well. So I, I kind of, I didn't have to, there was no glass half empty scenario with it. It's like if, you know, I could appreciate the time when times were quieter and when it was busy, I could appreciate the work. And that meant that there was um, no no pressure to be doing more. And I think that naturally probably meant that um, I did do more because things felt more natural um, and I was less concerned going out looking for work. And you do do that uh, the first year. You are you literally going around <laughs> looking for work. <laughs> there were just uh, a handful of people in my network who when I went out and said what I was doing were just sort of like how can we help uh and that was either sort of booking courses with me which is a huge thing because before you've trained anyone externally you have no testimonials so you can say oh, I can do all of this but it's like we'll back it up where have you done it um so those first ones that's huge uh and and they were brilliant they were people in my network beforehand um who were just you know happy to support uh and then once you had one or two of those then it sort of flowed a little bit more 
And I think there was this really nice kind of community of people who I'd been sort of doing the same job as um, a year before. Uh, so they were kind of like peers around the market that were able to kind of almost rally around and um, give me a bit of a head start support to, um, to to grow the business. And whether that was, you know, actually bringing me in to do work um, or giving me advice um, or just putting my name in conversations, like a whole mixture of things. It, it didn't feel like I was on my own um, for very long. It d- definitely did, like initially. But I, I kind of, as long as, as soon as I sort of learned that I had to ask for help with this, uh, which is a really hard thing to do, to kind of go out and ask for work. Um, as soon as I started doing that, it was like, oh, people actually genuinely want to help you. So this isn't this isn't that awkward. It's okay. Um, so that was a big advantage. And I think there was a few um market speaking opportunities that were really good to just kind of get my name out there wider um, I had quite a presence on LinkedIn before this anyway I think when I left Liberty I probably had something like it was around seven eight thousand um connections or something so I could put content out on Which LinkedIn and it would get seen yeah um and I I don't I don't I don't know at what point I kind of consciously started doing that but I just I could see even at Liberty that there was an advantage in it for my network I remember the first time somebody mentioned sort of me on LinkedIn that um, I got in the lift at Lloyd's so this was Liberty time I was a HR person so it really was long before the idea of having a business Um, and when I was in the lift someone just went oh Sam Ridgewell and I was like oh sorry if we met she's like no I know you from LinkedIn it's like (laughs) oh and it because it was the first time I, I didn't know what creepy. I didn't know what to do with that, right? I'm quite used to it now. Um, in EC3, nowhere else. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it threw me. Uh, but it was really nice because then we could talk about like the job um, that you know she knew that we were doing the same job, so we could trade notes. And then we went into this talk together. We sat together. Um, so it was a real nice kind of icebreaker um set up and it kind of you know that that conversation always stays with me because I was like how like how have I had a impact with someone I haven't met um like and and that's such an advantage like why not be able to walk in a room and people already like know your name that's that's so helpful um so that was certainly one of the times where I thought okay there's something in this but certainly by that point I must have been putting out quite a bit of content for her to recognize me there's a lot of content out there that isn't valuable to most people and every now and again you hopefully come up with some piece of content or put something out there that actually has meaning or catches the moment or catches the mood and people respond to it and remember it the power of linkedin professionally is bonkers it's something i'm looking at more and more at the moment trying to build it out work out what my voice is and and what content people would be interested in for me i checked your your linkedin account this morning to see how many followers you have and you have twenty thousand linkedin followers Twenty thousand. oh that's cool (laughs) you're balloon to me last time (laughs) this is true um (laughs) that balloon is still up downstairs oh brilliant the power of having a presence with people you don't know when you then meet them because you don't know who you don't know but equally you don't know the people you might need to know but they are likely to find you if you are prepared to put yourself out there a bit and be a bit more high profile. That's my experience of it. Is that similar to your experience? You're, you're a lot further down the journey than I am. Um, yeah, I'm at the start so, of my journey. 
like I so I'm a big advocate of pie the um the theory of how you get promoted Inga Bill speaks about this um a lot she's the person that um first introduced me to it and I talk about it a lot in courses um pie is three things that we need to do to to get right to get uh, get promoted really and one of them is performance like you have to do a good job but that is a given you are there to do a good job everyone's doing a good job that's status quo so we're not taking anything away from that but we are saying at a certain point in your career that's no longer enough um then i is image which is your brand like what are people saying about you when you're not in the room and i kind of often look at this we used to use that phrase dress for the job you want i think this is like acting for the job you want you want people to get you muddled up with the job title above you if that's the job title you're aiming for. So people already think you're at that level because then asking for the promotion to that level is, doesn't feel like a jump. So how are you going to kind of project that? Um, experience, seniority, credibility, what that might be. And then the third piece of the pie uh, is E. Uh, e is for exposure. And people often say it's who you know. I, I completely disagree with that. It's who knows you. It's the other way around. There could be thousands of people who are seeing your LinkedIn who know who you are. There is no way that you're going to know them all. So it's no longer about like knowing and having this connection um, one-on-one. It's about your name being there. And um, I lean on this theory of familiarity a lot. Um, So I'll give you my my story. I I talk about this in in courses with it. But um, uh familiarity is all that kind of connection that you have with people just because you recognize them Uh, and if we go back to my long train journeys when I used to come into the city I'd kind of get on this train few few days couple of weeks first like on my own and I was like see the same people at the station start smiling at them start saying hello to them um and you start kind of feeling this bond to them even though you don't know who they are now, imagine you walk into Tesco's and you see one of those people in Tesco's. You're like, oh, fancy seeing you here. Now, whether you say that out loud or not, you get this little buzz inside of you that's really excited to see that person. In fact, I can remember we went on holiday once um, as a family and we were in this market um, in, in Benidorm, I think we were. It was a very classy holiday. Um, and my mum spotted someone in this market from our town. And she like chased after her. She was so excited to see this woman. Um, and she didn't know her. So she got there. We all followed her. And then she's like, oh, you're from Seaford. She didn't know what to say. Like, because she would do just because she'd seen the woman she knew in this unconnected place. She just had this urge to go up to her and say hello because she was so excited to see her. Even though she had no idea who she was. And I completely get that feeling with people where I'm like, oh, you. And then I think, who are you? But that feeling of knowing somebody. Um, gives you a connection and a head start and a level of intimacy before you've even had an exchange. And that used to be, you know, getting on the train or you might sit next to somebody, have a football season ticket, sitting next to somebody you don't know who they are, but absolutely you feel connected to them. You see them all the time. You can do that on LinkedIn. So people feel like they they know you, they feel connected to you because they see your face and your name coming up over and over again. As long as you're kind of particularly sharing a little bit of your personality and your values are coming through on there as well, then when they see you, you know, it's it's not like huge. They know that, you know, there's not been a conversation yet, but there's a head start there where they're like, oh, it's Phil. I know Phil from LinkedIn. That That's a really nice way to start. And they're predisposed to like you rather than starting from a point of suspicion, which is what most, when you meet someone 
new you don't know you are suspicious you naturally are just having a little bit of familiarity whether it be being from the same place the same company same sports team same gym same coffee shop whatever it doesn't really matter what it is but if there's something you you will automatically feel feel closer to them and that's what linkedin particularly does i'm just minded when you talk about that is most people forget social media is what what social means it's a place to interact it's not a place to be passive. How many people will go to the playground and just stand and watch everyone else play? Well, you wouldn't get to know anyone, would you? But if you get in there and start playing, then you get to know people. And it's, it's that slightly different approach. And I'm, I'm acutely aware that the vast majority of people on LinkedIn don't say or do anything. They're, they're passive users for various reasons. And then there's a small proportion of people who are active. And you build connections quickly. I've... Yeah recently stopped being able to respond to messages each day because like now i get too many i literally get i don't have a big presence on there but that's just starting to happen to me now and it's something like oh right i need to start working out how to deal with people who are reaching out and want to say something so what what's your advice for someone who gets a lot of connections across all of your social media and how to deal with that so i i, I chunk them <clears throat> in my time so there's a few things that i i do um and I, i've had to kind of like dissect this um so these aren't kind of necessarily conscious steps but this, this is working me working out how this works uh, one thing that i do is i don't count social media as work in my head i'm very strict with myself is like you know five o'clock and also my focus by five o'clock i'm definitely a morning person i much prefer open my laptop early um than, than late in the day but my, my laptop always closes at the end of the day um but I don't count social media in the same way with that. Like if I'm opening up TikTok or I'm opening up LinkedIn, I don't count that as work. I know I probably should. Like I am, I am aware that it's, there's a work element to it. But if I feel like it's work, if I treat it like work, I think I, I will find it harder to prioritize time to do it. Um, and less enjoyable as well. Like I separate the two in my head. So, so already I kind of have a distinction of the way I look at them. Um, but then um, with LinkedIn, I often find like there's a rhythm. A lot of the messages tend to be sort of similar things. I get there's a bit of a rhythm of, of what comes through. So if I just open up and reply to one, then like my mind's gone in that direction and then I stop it and then I'm going back to my job. Like it's a bit of a waste of pulling my mind in that direction. So what I'll do is kind of only reply every sort of three or four days usually. Um, and then I'll just reply to all of them in one go. And it won't take me too long because a lot of them are kind of a lot of people that connect with me, of course, are looking for jobs. So I'll, I'll be copy and pasting the same link. So if I've got the same link and I've already got it pasted, it's quite easy to just paste it into several. And then I'll reply a bit more personally around the um, questions people are asking. Uh, but that allows me to kind of just do them in a chunk. Um, uh, so I find that's that's quite helpful. And then I try just not to feel guilty about taking a bit of time to reply on LinkedIn. I do think people are a little bit more patient with you. I certainly hope they are. Um, like if it takes, you know, a good few days to reply to someone, I think people sometimes uh, don't half expect you to reply anyway, because people are often like, oh, thanks for reply. And I'm like, oh, of course, you know, um, unless it's a spam sales message. <laughs> it's a very different thing. But if someone's sent me a personalized message, um, I will reply. It's just a matter of like when to do it. Um, and then I try and do them in the morning. Oh, here's here is a tactical tip. I try and do them quite early because then people aren't online and people don't reply instantly because it's um really tricky if I'm trying to get all of my unread messages down, but people are replying, so they're not going down, the conversations are starting. So it's quite nice to try and do them like 
yeah, I try and get them out of the way before kind of people are likely to start replying back because then I can deal with all replies back at another chunked period of time. Well, there are. It seems, seems we've got a bit of a theory about transparencies today. Don't message Sam back immediately if she sends you a message. <laughs> Do her a favor. Though. So while we're on social media, let's talk about TikTok. How did you come to be on TikTok and what do you see it as its great advantage? So TikTok for me was just part of my lockdown journey for like for many people. Um bit bored, uh disconnected, wanted wanted more connection. Um and I was I was working really hard in lockdown actually because I had another newborn baby. Um so uh Grace came along um uh right at the beginning of lockdown and uh, uh me and grace i didn't know me and grace would be working so closely together when i named my child <laughs> uh, but me and grace max said um started our cii project uh which was where we were turning the books into online courses and we were working all the time uh, we saw this as kind of a window where we would never have so much sort of freedom in our calendars um and now it was like get it get it through so we were you know we were really kind of grabbing time to just film and record all of this stuff wherever we could get it on our own. Um, so I, it was a bit of a release, probably TikTok for me. Um, and initially that was watching stuff. And then I was like, oh, this is a bit fun. I'll, I'll make a few. And I kind of just played around with it. And then after a few weeks, I was like, hold on, wait, like my job is to kind of talk and tell stories and you know, almost share content, but just in person. I I should be able to do something with this, but I didn't really know what. So I thought, okay, I'm going to make a um, empower development page rather than kind of you know silly page, um, and just start sharing some tips for young people. There's loads of young people on this platform. Let's give them some tips. So I just kind of started doing a few around applying for graduate jobs or how to consider career options that you might be interested in or. Uh, why it's worth getting used to picking up the phone when you're a teenager because you're going to have to do it when you're at work and not everything's on an app. Um, just like little practical tips. Uh, and one of those like videos went viral um, and got half a million views uh, pretty much overnight. I did not sleep much that night. It's very hard to go to sleep when your video is on the For You page, by the way. Like, it, you're, like it's really like, it's it's hard to just ignore the comments or whatever that might come through. So um but every time I refreshed my phone I was like oh oh and then it started going up in like tens of thousands um it's a very quick build that one and I picked up about seven thousand followers and I was like oh wait all these followers are looking for a job they're all looking for a grad job so I was like okay I'm gonna make my content all about looking for a grad job because that's what these people want help with and I did that for a few months um it's it took me embarrassingly long to connect the fact that I were, had a whole audience of thousands of job hunters who were looking for a job. Um, and I had this problem that I'd been trying to fix, uh, sort of be part of fixing for years, which was helping young people for, talk about insurance. So I was suddenly like, oh, wait, I should, I should probably talk to them. And in all honesty, I think I probably thought I would, um, like they would be disconnected from me if I started talking about insurance. Like I just thought this you know where everyone thinks it's boring until they come into it it like I was like no I I know it's not boring and I, I've got their trust now if I can talk to them about it we can make this more um 
relevant and accessible. And so then the page kind of, I converted it more into insurance and still give the advice on graduate CVs and that type of thing, but very much tailor it to jobs and insurance now. So I've really niched it down. Um, so we've got 25,000 followers now. Um, and the the content is, you know, either interviewing people around the market. I love doing that. Um, and, and the followers love it because uh, there's a lot of people that work in insurance that that enjoy that too. Uh, it gives you um, just different perspectives on parts of the industry we're not, you know, always going to come across. But also it's just really fun when you see someone you know being interviewed on it. Like, you know, people quite enjoy the, the WhatsApp messages they get afterwards. Um, and, uh, and then sometimes we'll do kind of memes now as there's, there's some really good kind of, uh, voice and voice effects that you can do, um, about Lloyd's sort of joking about how everyone thinks it's a bank, me included, um, or, uh, how everyone assumes it's boring or whatever it might be. So there's kind of content that's kind of more short and humorous like that. Um, and then sharing the jobs as, as I see them. Uh, so that people who follow the page can find it but what I try and really do is direct people to the links that I have on the page because I can't be on TikTok every day um it is really hard work um it's it's the hardest part of everything I do I think for me because I I love it but it requires a very specific part of my brain that is not always turned on so there will be days that I wake up and I'm like I can do TikTok today and I'll make three or four in a go. And once I've made them, I cannot sit tight on them. I know I should be like, right, post one a day, stagger them out. I can't. I'm like, I've made these. I want them out there. And I'll post like all of them within an hour or two. And then the next day I'll be like, oh, you haven't made any today. You haven't posted anything. And then I'm annoyed at myself because um, it's so, there's so much potential with it. And I like my main value, the whole reason I do my business, my main thing is about like maximizing your potential. And I know that TikTok is a, a, a so underutilized potential for me. And that makes that makes it really hard for me because I'm always feeling guilty about what I haven't done on it. Um, so I'm absolutely next year, like I'm, I really want to sort of carve out more time to do it in a more structured way um, and prioritize that time. At the moment, we're just, we're so busy. Uh, the, the job is so busy, but I've, I've got somebody in particular coming in um, or I'm hoping that's going to, give me a bit of freedom and I'm going to just try and make it a bit of a non-negotiable for me. Uh, but I know it's, it's, it's just so, it's so hard to, to make the most out of because it's endless the potential. And that's really why I'm keen that other people come on it. Um, because all of us together can, um, open that kind of potential that there's the whole generation of people on there. They don't have to go anywhere to find you. You, you, you can tell them your story. We know we have a good story to tell. We know insurance is interesting. And if you've got people's attention, telling them that on TikTok, it's so impactful. I'm meeting people every week who have found out about insurance through TikTok. I'm getting messages on LinkedIn every day. And, and the, the impact of it is huge. Whereas I could go out to a career fair and spend days going to a career fair and have nowhere near that level of impact. So it takes so much less time to have much more impact. It's just... um and because of that, it's never completed. It's never job done. So you're going to have to make that switch between TikTok being part of work, as in something you allot time to during work hours, presumably, 
or are you going to tag it on to we're going to make your days even longer and um add in extra time to, to do tiktok on top of what your actual day-to-day job is yeah i mean the way i want to manage my myself um and i did this at the beginning of the year this worked um so i just need to get back to this routine uh as as workload can allow uh, was to always have one day a week that i work from home um and this helps with my uh my mum guilt as well uh, so one day a week that i can do drop off and i can do pick up and um i can have one-to-ones with everyone in the team we can have a team meeting um it's like my structured day uh, and at some point in that day i'd put in like an hour and a half to make some tiktoks um and that that did work so that the plan will be to try and get back to that there will always be tiktoks that are just more silly and you know last night um i know i often say like we don't just do dancing like tiktok's not just for dancing and my page isn't about dancing last night we did make a dancing tiktok um so i was out for um it uh, in, <laughs> it, it is yeah uh, the insurance livery um installation dinner uh, for master club Bowl. and um a few of us uh, headed over together so i was like right uh, someone sent me this sound they want us to make a tiktok of it let's let's do it so um got in the lift with a few familiar faces if you've uh, they're all people i've interviewed on the page before um everything uh from actories to non-exec directors partying in this lift it's great fun <laughs> um but you know that was just fun so it's like well occasionally just you know that just feels like the right thing to do in the right moment we had to go up and down in the lift until we finished filming it it's great fun because uh, uh, Boaz um, <laughs> called the lift, came in. He's like, come on in the TikTok. <laughs> so we actually add a member of the uh, dancing community halfway through because uh, he legitimately just got in the lift. Yeah. I think that's the fun. If you can keep things fun and lighthearted in the same way everything, if it gets too worky, too intense, then it, it loses its charm. So I'm I'm, I'm going to immediately after after we finish this go and watch that. One of the things we, we touched or you touched on earlier was about bringing young people into insurance. And one of the stats I saw recently was I've I've I googled the stat to try and find what where it came from, and it's from the American Chamber of Commerce about American insurance rather than UK. But I'm assuming the stats are probably pretty similar. And it said that 50 percent of the current workforce in America in insurance will retire by 2036 and that 25 percent only are under the age of 36 so given that in 10 13 years time half the workforce insurance is going to disappear what does insurance need to do now to ensure that doesn't mean a massive knowledge gap a massive experience gap and just half the profession just evaporating off the face of the earth yeah, Caroline Wagstaff as well at the LMG has done research on that in London and absolutely we've got the same problem. Um, so we we have a problem. I Like I really genuinely see this as um, something that if we don't take action on, we are going to get further and further in, into this talent shortage. So I think, we, you know, we've acknowledged that, that, that certainly last year in particular was a talent shortage. I think it's going to get sort of considerably worse um because we are not bringing in as many entry-level people anymore because we have less processing jobs and then the ones that we are bringing in are potentially not progressing quite as fast not not everyone this is of course i'm making it this is a trend 
um, but not quite as fast as uh, used to be the case because you used to sit next to your seniors five days a week and see and learn from everything that was going on. Um, and in a lot of cases now, uh, you might be sitting with them two or three days a week. So you are just learning from less from them week by week. So it's just going to be a slightly slower pace of learning. Um, unless you have structured development. And there are examples where we, we see that and that's going well, but it's not the trend. Um, so we're going to have lots of people leaving uh, with all of this knowledge. And then lots of people who are maybe looking around for that support and we're just not, we're just not going to have enough of it to potentially go around unless we've already kind of absorbed that knowledge and shared that knowledge. My my view is I have a few a few kind of thoughts on this. We do need to have a lot more collective shared knowledge for the market. Um, people who are retiring actually are very generous with their information. There's a lot of people who've said to me, oh, I'll you know, talk to you on that and so on. So, you know, I, I do want to do something in that space. It is on my, like, I don't know what it is yet, but I, I really feel like there is a way that all these people that want to share this knowledge, we can create a way to do that. Um, uh, so, you know, and I do think that does need to be something that's done from, from the market, you know, so it doesn't need to be led as a kind of collective rather than a competitive position. Um, but in the short term, what what I think we definitely should be encouraging is more peer reviewers. So most people, when they retire, don't want to just stop overnight. Um, and when they do, I, I mean, I, I know a lot of people, um, you know, the livery in particular, there's a lot of people that you speak to in the livery that are non-exec roles or um, retiring, semi-retired. Um, and on our um, Empower Talks podcast recently, we had um, Guy Munnock, who uh, was the CEO at Zurich um, and is now um, in retirement, but very busy uh, doing lots of things. He specialised in the area. So we, we spoke quite a bit about what that kind of transition is like to retire. Um, and they want to do something. They want to be useful. They want to have purpose. They want their knowledge to be utilised. And if we have a peer reviewer set up, whether that's organisations kind of doing it within their own classes of business or some kind of market like peer review and knowledge section um like I, f- I feel like there's a there's a really obvious solution there like these people as much as they're leaving their full-time jobs they're not disappearing um, and they usually don't want to um, of course some of them do credit to them like <laughs> feel free to go and do that but a lot of people don't um so they but then it's quite hard like i say it's hard going out and looking for work uh this is very much the case when you retire it, they they kind of they're like where do I where do I go? Like I want a bit of work. Who do I talk to? They can't really go on LinkedIn and go, "Hi, I'm here as a consultant. If you if you want me, you know that, that's a quite hard thing for a lot of people to do." So there there is a kind of supply of all of this knowledge and expertise and people that want to share it and a demand for it, but we don't really have some kind of pull um, to access that and share that and, and income stream for those people as well. Like there needs to be something I think set up to to make sure we're, we're valuing it just before we we finish can you just explain to me the different career paths in insurance from graduate apprentice so once you've got to that graduate role wh- what are the different career trajectories up to let's see. there are loads you've got two minutes to explain <laughs> all of them um i mean the obvious ones uh, which I'm less inclined to talk about because everybody thinks about them and they aren't the only ones. They are just the ones that everybody talks about. Uh, is often the kind of, you know, the underwriting route, the broker route. 
where you are progressing up that ladder of underwriter assistant to assistant underwriter to underwriter, senior underwriter, class underwriter, whatever that might title might be. And then, um, then, then you get to a level where rather than being the subject matter expert of your class of business, you are likely to be heading up a department. So let's say you have always been a cargo underwriter. Your next job might be head of marine. So now you are supporting all of these other underwriters who do different classes of business that you know less about. So there's that transition of rather than being the expert, starting to try and become the generalist um, within underwriting. And then you'd uh, move up um, to the C-suite if that's that's your intention, up into usually like an active underwriter role and then a a CEO or a, a CEO kind of position um I think the, the the people who are often able to do that the ones that I, I kind of see doing that are the ones that are really able to be commercial and there is a gap of of that and I think it's um a skill that is not um highlighted enough that people need to develop it and really you want to be developing it long before you need it and that is the ability to be sitting in underwriting and understand that what you're doing's impact on claims. And that's probably the first place people will think. Um, but then you're thinking about, well, the impact of, of that on reserving. And then you're thinking about the impact of that on investment returns. And then the impact on that on cash flow. Therefore, the finance department, the exposure management department, well, how about the talent and the HR team? And we've got all these new transitions going on. Well, we need project management. We need change. We need digitalization. How, how are they going to feed back in? And and seeing how the whole piece fits together, there's a there's a real gap um, for, for people learning about that. And for me, that's one of the reasons I really recommend people do CII, because I do think the CII exams um, force you, because you have to do multiple modules, to learn about different areas of the business and see how they all fit together. You might not need to know that for your job, but if you do want to progress, you can't sit around um, a boardroom um, or a senior committee uh, without understanding the numbers and not only the numbers, but what those trends mean and where they're coming from, because they won't all be underwriting numbers. They will, there are lots of other aspects of the business. Um, so I highly recommend people you know, get to know people outside of their, uh, their lane, as I often call it. So um, there's, there's that kind of route. What you also see is um, people who have a quite a skill set that a particular skill set that, that can help, at that level um and that sometimes can be kind of from a compliance background uh, particularly where there is that kind of legal uh, link into it actually um and uh accountants um there is a disproportionate amount of directors who are qualified accountants um it's a very sensible qualification to do if you have done your cii and you're uh, wondering what to do next like there, there is definitely merit to doing some accountancy exams and understanding that that financial literacy at, at senior level is very valuable uh, but you know like that's to be honest this do I say there's endless that's and that's really what I talk about on, on my podcast is picking people who are doing these career paths that I think are interesting who maybe have done them differently um so, for example, um, Helen Rios, she started out in exposure management. She managed an exposure management team. Then she thought, mm, I'd want to do underwriting. So she went into an underwriting role, but a back step into an underwriting role and then became a cyber underwriter and specialized in that. And, and now she's at Key and it's more portfolio underwriting and the whole trans- transformation for like a digital syndicate. Um, 
and it's there is no way you could map out that career path uh, and it's fantastic the one she's doing and um and I think you know you you just need to lean into the things that you are interested in you can't map it out you, you need to look at people who are progressing who are doing things and take inspiration from all of them but you can't copy any roots because that that route was always a matter of timing right then right right skills right person it's very hard to think i'll do this job then this job then this job then this job those those roots are you know they they still exist but there's other ways i'm an advisor to the insurance industry professionally and one of the things that i always think is there are an almost infinite number of jobs in insurance and the possibilities are almost endless. The ability to have a corporation give you those opportunities you know, for the whole of your career, if you want to, is something that is rare now. And so it's great to see that if we can bring people in the bottom end and show them the light, that they can have these incredible careers if they want to. And if you want to pivot halfway through your career and go and do something else, then, then you can. Um, even if it means taking a step back, then ultimately in the long run, you're probably better off for it because you'd be more rounded and more rounded people ultimately end up leading businesses. I just want to finish on one point. It's always a question I like to, to ask. What's your proudest moment since you've worked in insurance? This is the one that's going to come to my head. Um, uh I think it's just the novelty of the the comment and the place and so on. Um, but I'm really proud of what I'm doing on TikTok because I, I just think particularly early days, like it was quite easy to maybe not take it seriously and think, what on earth is she doing over there? Um, and, and to kind of persevere with something that's so like out of the norm uh, to what we're doing. Um, you know, that like... It, it takes a lot of self-talk <laughs> so um so I really love that and um I'm massively um involved in the insurance livery I I really recommend it as a place to go for um sport and, and mentors and meeting fantastic people in the industry and um every year one of our well our most grand event is a dinner with the Lord Mayor at Mansion House um, and last year, um, went along to that event and I took, uh, my partner and one of my friends from school, um, my train friend, Francis Maloney, in case he's listening to this. Um, he, and I, I kind of, we came along and I wanted particularly Mark and my friend from school to just kind of see what I'm doing. Cause, uh, my partner's an electrician. He has no, no idea what I I'm doing. Um, and my friends from school, um, again, like it's, they, they're all in Seaford, um, or Eastbourne and, uh, it's, it's quite a, a disconnect. Uh, and it's, I thought, come along and sort of see, see why I'm always saying I'm too busy at the weekends. <laughs> so it was a really brilliant dinner, but in the speech, the, the master, um, does a speech and it was Nick Dunlop last year. And during his speech, he carved out the time to give me a shout out for TikTok. So I'm in Mansion House in the Egyptian Hall, one of the oldest and most traditional um, 
rooms in the country therefore you know the world because we are quite the city of london is quite old um uh with hundreds of people from the market uh who i would say the vast majority do not have tiktok on their phone hey uh and nick basically says um gives, gives me literally words at a shout out gives me a shout out for uh being the insurance queen of tiktok he called me um and how the impact it's having and and basically like this just gave me that support and giving me that support so vocally in a room full of people who are such influence of the industry was almost like this badge of like permission if you like um not, not that I was you know, holding back from from having the permission but to to know that you have that um uh kind of credibility um backing from somebody uh in that sort of status that was huge and then the the room just all gave me a round of applause so to have a round of applause in the Egyptian hall with my partner and my friend from school and Francis and I'm like this was not this is not rehearsed I did not know this was going to happen it was just absolutely perfect um so yeah it kind of that felt big I love that that's massive I'm I'm just delighted for you what a wonderful wonderful moment I've been in that room and it's unbelievably old <laughs> and so to have something which is so new and something that you've been driving forwards to be recognized or just mentioned is just it's just fantastic um all credit to you and I, I genuinely hope you keep doing them and you keep raising the profile of insurance amongst everybody um and, but particularly the next next generation um i think it's incredibly important sam it's been absolutely fantastic having you on um i really really do wish you the best and i would encourage everyone who's listening to go and check you out on tiktok it's at empower.development and find you on linkedin um albeit if you send sam a message please don't expect a response too quickly she will come back to you please don't respond immediately to her message so thank you so much and uh, we'll see you in the future bye see you later Hello and welcome to the London Insurance Lawyer Podcast. Today I'm with Sam Ridgewell, founder of Empower Development, TikTok and LinkedIn Superstar. We talk insurance careers, content creation and the power of social media. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome to the London Insurance Lawyer Podcast. Today I'm with Sam Ridgewell, founder of Empower Development, TikTok and LinkedIn Superstar. We talk insurance careers, content creation, and the power of social media. Let's get into it.